Well, good morning. I want to add my word of greeting to those you already heard in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you to our worship team. Thanks to Mike and Chandler for leading us uh, in the Lord's Supper today. Um, and we'll look at that today briefly, that that was part of uh, worship in the early church. In fact, the central and primary uh, part of worship. That is exactly what we're going to look at today. In fact, we call today's message, Making Much of Jesus. Making Much of Jesus. You know, what matters most to God is that he matters most to us. And the way you can tell if someone or something matters much to you is how much you make of them or it. How much we devote our energy, our time, our enthusiasm there's a spillover out of our lives that says, what I make much of means much to me. And as he is de deserving and worthy, as, as Mike prayed, as we sang, that's what we want to be recalibrated, reoriented to again. The call, the invitation to make much of Jesus. And actually, that's the thing for which we were made, made for relationship with him, to make much of him, and then to even realize, as we just sang, who he is, no matter where you and I are today, that to come in his presence, to gather with his people, he designed it this way, that we might be hit in the heart with those truths as we sing them, whether we feel them or not, so that he might reorient us again to him. I want to pray again, just briefly, and then we'll get into the message. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to worship. Thank you for those who've used their gifts already this morning to point us to you. Thank you that they are about that, that they don't want the attention drawn to them, but they want our attention turned to Jesus. And that's my prayer as well. I pray that I not be a distraction, but I simply be a tour guide or a pointer to you so that you would be made much of in our thoughts this morning in our hearts in our response this morning but especially in our steps as we leave that worship would be a way of life where we make much of you outside of this place so that you would receive the glory do you and that others would be drawn to your beauty, your power, your grace and mercy, just as you have drawn us to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, pick, uh, pick me up there. We're going <clears> to, <throat> this is squeezed in between uh, two scenes that we've already looked at. We looked at uh, in Acts chapter 3. Um, in our series on cultivating community, we've looked at the early church, and in Acts chapter 3, we said this was the day that going to worship wasn't lame. There actually was a lame man who was on the way as Peter and John were going, and they heal him in the name of Jesus. Uh, he gets up and walks and leaps, and, and then everybody is in awe. Uh, but then the, religious, the Jewish religious leaders, um, they, they have Peter and John arrested, and they say, hey, you need to tell us, you know, how this happened. And they said, look, the only way this happened is was we, did, we didn't do it. Jesus did, us, did it through us. It, this was done in the name of Jesus. In fact, there's no other name under heaven in which there can be salvation or deliverance or rescue. 
in the name of Jesus. That's Acts 4.12. Acts 4.13, one of my favorite verses that we miss. It says, and they looked at them, and they knew they were country fishermen, uneducated folk. It's not exactly what it says. It says, they knew they were untrained, but they recognized them as having been with Jesus. What a great thing to be recognized for. In fact, that is what we, as we've talked about, this community that God calls us to cultivate. It, it, uh, because the Spirit of God indwells us, if we've trusted Jesus Christ, then we are, when we are together, He's already given us a unity in Christ, and His Spirit indwelling us can spark that fire. And we said one log by itself can burn for a little bit, but it burns out quickly. But God intended those logs to be close. And as we draw close to one another, His Spirit uh, he, he lights a flame, and the recognition would be, huh, there's something different about y'all. You've got left-leaning and right-leaning people hanging together. You've got old people and young people hanging together. You've got people from this background and that background hanging together. And what's going on with these people? And what they're seeing is the community aflame. They're seeing the Spirit at work and God's people united, and all of that then What's recognized is not us, that there's something of Jesus marked on us. In fact, he said, that's his signature. When we, by this, they'll know, um, they'll know you're my disciples when you have love for one another. So our love, our mutual care, our looking after one another, our praying for one another, our getting together, us being the luncheonest, breakfastest, coffee-gettingest people ever, when you wouldn't think that those people would ever get close to each other, they say there's something there. And what they're recognizing, whether they know it or not, is that we've been with Jesus because he's drawn us to himself. And so um, Peter and John are threatened, and they said, hey, look, just don't say anything more in this Jesus name and this resurrect. Like, don't do all, just keep your mouth shut. Go on about your business, we'll leave you alone. And in Acts 4.20 is when they say, hey, it's whether you, because they were debating, is this from God or not from God? And they said, look, you do what you need to do, but as for us, we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. What they had beheld, what they had seen and heard was a dead man walking. One that they saw agonized, few of them from afar, most of them had scattered, but from afar, agonizing on a gruesome and ugly cross. Then they knew he was put in a cave, and then they knew he wasn't in the cave, and then they saw him. He appeared. He appeared to them, and he appeared to over 500, Paul tells us, and even to Paul himself as part of his own testimony. Paul's not in the action right now. But that's the setup that they had been threatened. Don't speak any more in the name. So look with me in verses 23 to 31. I want us to see the church now. This church gathers together. Peter and John, two of their leaders, have been threatened. And by implication, this mandate of not speaking in the name of Jesus spreads to them or there will be consequences. But notice their response, verse 23. When they had been, re been released, that's Peter and John, they went to their own companions, the church, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, meaning their threats. And when they had heard this, when the church had heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, 
It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, so we think they're going to say, all right, Lord, they're in the wrong. Take them out. Lord, just we're, we're afraid. Like, just protect us. Make us comfortable. Um, get us out of this threatening situation. That's, that's where we might tend to go. That's not how they pray. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. This is real. They're real threats. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. What were they told not to do? They said, take note of their threats. We're not ignoring them. Living in la-la land is real. They said, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. That means freedom of speech. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So you keep demonstrating your power, which really is to authenticate the message. You keep doing that. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. Like, think earthquake. It was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, we, that's not what we would expect. In our day, there are times when to speak the name of Jesus gets you under threat, gets you under even perhaps legal heat. And it would be a hum, natural human response to pucker, to reassess, to strategize. They are, are, are filled with anticipation and joy, and their response is not one of puckering, but of resilience. Resilience even joyful in their response amidst these threats. How? How do you have how do you, how are you at that place with real threats like that responding with such resilience and even joy? Well, next slide. We'll go back to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, take a left. Verse forty-three, just the very first part. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Now we're going to read a little bit more in this passage, but 42 to 47 is where we've been base camping every week. And these people were together. They're continually devoting themselves. We're going to look at that in just a second. And this is a, the 242 to 47 is a summary. This isn't like one day. This is a summary of what's happening as the church gets going. And God has, is, is trying to, uh, not trying, he is establishing his church. And how he's doing that is establishing a people united around his son, whom they just came to trust as Messiah or Savior. And now they're part of this thing called the church, 
which is a family, and they've come from all over, remember, part of why they needed to share and people had needs and some people sold the farm in order to help other people eat was because many of them weren't even from there. They'd been there for Pentecost, traveled from far, and now they've stuck around. And 3,000 people came to Christ on that day of Pentecost when Peter had preached. So now you got 3,120 and increasing. And so there are all these needs. And all those needs being met and this togetherness and this generosity, and they were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were dealing with conflicts as they arose. It, there was just a sense of awe. There's a sense of there's something bigger going on that I can't quite explain. I can't quite put my finger on, but I know I also can't look away. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. What I want you to see is the connection between resilience, confidence, devotion to awe. They kept feeling a sense of awe. In our email this week, I just simply put in there, how is your awe capacity? How is your awe capacity? I mean, God has hardwired each of us for awe. And yet awe, especially in our day, seems to be dulled down. Everything has been there, done that. Everything feels a little blasé. There's been a malaise that we have been experiencing just as a culture. And I'll tell you, it's, it's not necessarily a complete loss of awe, but it is misplacing the awe that God wired us for to, ha- to be found in Him. Their sense of awe is that God's doing something and we are floored at times, we are lifted up at times, we're unraveled at times. And I just want us to see, as we're going to walk through it a little bit, that awe is not something we can manufacture. You can't control it. We're not here today to go, well, here's the formula. You want some awe in God? Here you go. But what we can do is, like the church in Acts 2 and following, we can posture ourselves before him, and we can pursue devoted rhythms that can help us receive and rehearse God's truth and declare his worth and our need for him in worship and in prayer. And our awe though we can't manufacture or control it, will be related to where we give devoted attention. Where we give devoted attention and where we direct our attention, our affections will follow. And when we redirect our attention to make much of Jesus together, which is why we gather on a Sunday and why we gather in life groups, etc. When we redirect our attention to make much of Jesus together, sometimes... Awe and gladness will flood in. And they'll expand, that will expand our picture of God. Like, wow, look what he's doing. And swell our hearts together. But I, I want to I pause Acts for a moment and come to our day. Because we have a real awe problem in our day. We're all made with the capacity for awe and to find awe in God. You and I are drawn to beauty. That's why um, 
Eric just got back, unless it rained all week. I didn't check the weather. Probably one or two times down there as the sun's setting on the Emerald Coast, and you just look down the beach, and there's the sunset, and you just, you don't go anywhere. You just pause and stop. Eric probably pulled out his guitar. No, <laughs> no, you know, that's, that's, God put that in us. He put that in us because he made us for himself, and he is perfection. He is beauty with no flaw. And the greatest satisfaction and delight for us is to gaze at his beauty, to stop and to take in his power his majesty, and yet be, then be blown away that he would become flesh. He would come near to us. God designed us for awe, and yet we can often mislocate it. We can often misgive, if you will, our attention, and therefore all will go away. Um, a few years back, uh, there have several. There have been several different studies done done on this, but um, alarming rates in the world, but especially United States and other um, first world countries, that the mid 2010s, so 2015, 2016, psychologists, psychiatrists, social psychologists, they started to note alarming trends within teenagers of depression, anxiety, loneliness. Um, in fact, I think the year was 2016, um, that depression rates, they noted, started going up and up and up. And that 44% of teenagers, when surveyed, say they feel hopeless. 30% of them feel lonelier than they did a few years ago. 20% said, yes, I've been thinking of suicide. And as, uh, as anyone, and Mike is a counselor, others in the mental health profession will tell you, it was somewhere around 2015, 2016, they no longer could see everyone who needed to see, who wanted to see someone, was desperate to see someone, because of the mental health crisis. And as they begin to look at it, they saw the tick ups. And, and again, this is among teenagers, and I would even say the um, fascinating and also alarming was, um, I'm talking middle school and high schoolers, but alarming was uh, even more among young girls that between ages of 12 to 18, girls even more had these alarming rates of depression, suicidal thoughts. Well, it started to trend up about 2012, but it really started to peak 2015, 2016, and keep going. And what they traced it back to was 2012 was the year that most teenagers got on social media for the first time. Now, this isn't me. I know you hear me talk about technology a lot. I try to be as careful as I can with it. But I'm saying that the reality of what we're swimming in, we created. And I want to say this to you teenagers. You didn't create it. 
it's not your fault, but it is what you now have to learn how to navigate. And we need to help you, and we need to model for you how to handle it in healthy ways. Now, I'm not going to die. I'm, I'm not going to keep going down this road, except for I want to give you two um, two thoughts that bring us back to what is that? What is it about that? Um, Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist, he's also a professor in the School of Ethics and Business, at New York University. In 2022, um, he went before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, particularly looking at technology, privacy, and law. And you can read this online. He gave lots of statistics, lots of graphs, even teenagers in, in it saying, the number one cause of me struggling with depression or whatever is social media, and it was by a landslide. But he went before them to say, hey, as we're trying to figure out as a culture, what do we do to address the real stuff and then to help us navigate this, what, what do we do? And he pointed some of those things out, the statistics, the alarming statistics, and how they cor- correlate with um, the fact that we now begin to, oh, my kid's 11 and 12, here's a glowing rectangle. He, Jonathan Haidt calls them experience blockers because they block us from the experience of a sunset of a Grand Canyon of of just seeing others. And um, and so Jonathan Haidt just began to to let let those in the Senate know these are the these are the the facts. This is the correlation. What are we going to do? And so he he just began to say part of it is what, is, what do smartphones do? They're, they block my experience. What does social media do? It ding, 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 ding. What are those? They disrupt your attention constantly. You'll see I'm trying to get back to the acts, but it's disrupted attention that reduces awe or at least puts awe somewhere else. And when we're not finding our awe in God, ultimately it won't satisfy. We'll bring about discontent depression, hostility, you name it. And so these constant interruptions, constant interruptions, constant dopamine hits. It's like it's, it's difficult to navigate life that way. So Ben Stewart picking up on this, um, there's a quote here. He said, these, because of these experience blockers that we give our kids at an, at an early age, I'm not saying that's wrong, but because of that constant interruption, he said, constant interruption is what leads you to the shallows. That can make us like fish who live in rain puddles, never growing into what God intended for your life. That's, that's as right on as you can get. Um, in fact, Jonathan Haidt, I couldn't believe it. I read it in the Senate Judiciary Report thing. He just said, this is why I call the last decade in America Basically, we've been stupid. <laughs> I guess that's allowed before the Senate Judiciary Committee. But then here's what he said, and I want to show you this quote next. With all this data and all this research and all this, man, depression and suicide, and he said, here's what concerns me. You can put it up there, would He said, with all these findings, what concerns me most for this generation 
is that they stand in awe of nothing. They stand in awe of nothing. Again, teenagers, this isn't a, a thing against you. This isn't a guilt thing. This is a, we, we made this mess, and what we've done, perhaps, in the name of, I just like some peace and quiet, so here's a rectangle to look at. We've reduced, reduced, and reduced the experience of the awe that God intended. God is a God of delight. God is a God of abundant life, life to the full. And we've put ourselves and you in a place where life is not full and it's being lived in the shallows because of constant interruption. Um, When he says, uh, what concerns me that they stand in awe of nothing, by all, I love this description. He says, by, by all he means a vastness that when you behold it requires accommodation. When you go to the Grand Canyon, I have not been there. I need to go there. It doesn't count. So, oh, look, there's a picture of the Grand Canyon. It's even in HD. I've heard when you get there, how many of you been to the Grand Canyon? Hey, look at that. I've heard, this is not very steep, I've heard you, you get even close to it and you begin to see the expanse. Speechless. And, and then hushed. And then you're just trying to take it all and you can't. The amount, the vastness and the amount of wow. And what does it require? It requires accommodation. At least, if nothing more than you're not getting close to the edge, right? It requires going, huh, I think my life's been a little shallow lately. It requires adjusting because it's so vast and so powerful, a demonstration of the creative beauty of our creator. And so, Vastness, we all need a vastness that requires accommodation, else we will live in the shadows. We need glory, majesty. We need to peer at it, gaze at it long enough to behold that vastness, that beauty, and that will lead us to deep places. Well, with that, I want to come back to Acts. Look at Acts 2. It'll be on the slide here. Because they were resilient and seeking to be radiant for Christ in a threatening situation because of the awe that caused them to adjust and accommodate to the God they couldn't believe would reach out to them in the way that he did and so powerfully change them. And then this lame man is healed and the power and the mercy of God is on full display. And and they're hushed. But then they erupt in praise. And it's their awe that brought them to that place. But the way they cultivated that awe was through their attention. They had to accommodate the vastness of God. And then they they didn't have to. Then they wanted to 
give attention to certain things. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. These were four essential rhythms that they gave themselves to. Uh, we told you before to continually devote. The word comes from, um, or their origins mean to be strong toward, to lean with energy, strength, attention. I'm after something. This means much to me, so I will make much of getting to this place of giving attention to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And that, when we gather, when we scatter, when we get together in life groups, when we are seeking what they, this is a description right here of Christ-centered worship when they gather as a community where they gathered to make much of Jesus. I would even say they gathered to make much of Jesus who they're just now barely getting to know. Which is why they needed the apostles' teaching. Which is why it meant so much. to When it says breaking of bread, they're talking, he's talking about the Lord's Supper most likely. It would have also been part of love feast and getting together house to house and having dinner. But often they took the Lord's Supper. And then as we found them in Acts 4, devoting themselves strongly to prayer. We want to be those who when we gather, that we gather to worship Christ. The songs we sing declare Christ's worth and beauty and power. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that he came near and he laid down his life for me. And he rose from the grave. And because of that, I know that I can be assured that my hope is a living hope. And that I have a hope of being risen one day with him. We desire to be a place to belong. We desire to be a genuine and generous people who cultivate community and love one another with mutual care. And we desire and we're called to and we're best nourished by being a place and a people where Christ is exalted and treasured when we gather. And I say that because this could kind of become laundry listy, and I don't want it to be. I'm going to give a little bit of description, but I wanted to set that stage. We all are hardwired, not only for community, but hardwired for, to find awe in God and the pathway to the possibility of that is through giving our attention to make much of Jesus when we gather. So to make much of Jesus, I'm going to actually skip down to the breaking of bread and prayer. We'll be real quick on this. But I think what that looks like is us rehearsing and declaring God's worth and our need for him. Rehearsing and declaring his worth and our need for him. When you rehearse something, you are... <clears throat> Visiting it and revisiting it and revisiting it. The song we sang at the beginning today, Eric said, hey, we'll sing it again. Why? Well, we're rehearsing it today. And then at some point, you're like, hey, I think I got it. And you're like, oh, not only do I have the tune, I just got hit by what I just sang. And so rehearsing, that's something. The team rehearses before in anticipation of inviting us to rehearse the truths that we're singing to point our attention to the one who is worthy of our attention 
and our affections to follow. They, they are rehearsing so that they might remove distraction for themselves, playing an off note or whatever, and that's okay every now and then, but so that we might behold the vastness of the one that we sing, He is hope for the hopeless, rest for the weary. All that you're needing, He is. And so the Lord's Supper, breaking of bread, that's rehearsing. We're remembering His death until He comes. We're rehearsing that His body was broken and His blood was shed, that His life was given for you and for me. So that in that, we might, there's some, some weeks you may partake of the Lord's Supper, and just let's just be human here, and it doesn't hit you. And then there's other weeks you can't explain it. For whatever reason, I thought I was kind of over that, that Jesus died for me, and I can't believe he died for me. And some of us had to come in today and be confronted with in this rehearsal that also Paul said, let us not take unworthily. Let, what that means is if you've been treating God flippantly, we just think, oh, I've been doing some gross sins. No, if I've just been neglecting attending to him, if, if I have been flippant, about the Lord or neglectful of even thinking of Him, then it's an opportunity. It doesn't mean don't take it. It's right now, do business with the Lord. Like, Lord, I, I, I'm reminded again that it is only in your mercy and grace that I'm in relationship with you. And now you brought me to be part of your family and I love you. We only love Him because He first loved us. We have to keep rehearsing that He first loved us. And that's what that does. Then it says also devoting themselves to, to prayers or the prayers. This is two things at least. It's set prayers. When they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'll get in trouble. I'll do the wrong version. You'll say it's trespasses. No, it's debts. Okay? There were some set prayers. There were other set prayers that aren't even in the Bible. They just, hey, these are prayers we say. And we do them in community, and it's rehearsing truths about who God is and who we are, and that we need reorienting often again and again. We need the redirection of our attention back to Him, because He made us on purpose for a purpose, and specifically, that's to glorify Him in everything. So some set prayers, often spontaneous prayers, that when they gathered in Acts 4, it was spontaneously in response to Peter and John got released and told them what happened, and they're just kind of like, let's pray. I don't even think they said, let's pray. They just started praying. And those, those are often rich times. Sometimes you start sharing about something that you were like trying to keep close to the vest, but it's really been, struggle, it's been a struggle and a, a source of anxiety for you. And somebody asks how you're doing and you decide to not say fine. You say, Actually, I, you know, it's been a little bit thicker week. Um, and then all of a sudden you just find yourself breaking down. And they say, let's pray. Let me pray for you. And maybe they mo that prayer is mostly sitting in silence with you and weeping. But then that prayer ministers. Again, notice in Acts 4, they didn't ask God to get them out of the threatening situation but to give them boldness to share Christ in those situations. It's interesting also their prayer is chocked full of 
the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, which we'll talk about in just a second, is what the apostles' teaching came from. There was no New Testament. They were the New Testament <laughs> embodied. But they prayed for one another. I'm just going to let you know this real quick. If you throw the next one up here, um, we've got some folks who have, have begun to put together for us this is in the infancy stages. But just as a church, how can we pray for you? We want to see life groups, um, you know, be a primary source where you're rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep, and you're sharing real stuff and praying for one another. But we also just want to be aware of ways in which we can pray for one another broadly across the body. And so you can go to this and submit the prayer request, and then there'll be a prayer newsletter, call it that, that will um, let folks know. Um, and it won't be broadcast everywhere. It will be sent to those uh, amongst our body. And so we do want to know, how can we pray for you? Our elders meet almost weekly, and our staff meets weekly and we pray for the needs of the body but this isn't just oko that those are the good the varsity prayers no there are others who will be praying and we're going to invite you to pray but we'll also invite you to share your prayer request and lastly i just encourage you to write this down you can go look at it later but a prayer for me sort of set slash spontaneous is colossians 1 9 to 12 it's a prayer that when folks are telling me a hard situation and maybe they've got a dilemma, or maybe they've really been hurt and they're not sure how to respond. They're, they're, they've been out of work for a while. They got laid off. They're confused. Um, I will pray Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And I won't get the very first part right, um, but since we heard of you know, your faith and your love in the Lord Jesus, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please Him in all respects, bear fruit um, in every work, and increase in your knowledge of Him. Basically, it's my way of saying, I want to pray for you, but I don't want to just pray that He takes you out of that situation. I don't want to pray that that person at work who's bad-mouthed you at the water cooler and kind of responsible for why you didn't get a promotion or whatever, and you just kind of want them to be taken out, rather than pray that, it's praying that God might fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Understanding means to bring this and this that don't seem together, bring them together where, you, where the light bulb comes on. And wisdom is how do you navigate life in all its situations, good, bad, and ugly, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of him. I don't know what that is exactly. But that's, to me, a, a prayer that I memorized years ago, and I hold on to it. And it helps me not pray just that you'll be comfortable or that I'll be comfortable, but that Christ might be honored, which is what they wanted. Give us boldness in the midst of a threat. Help us walk worthy of you, even though they're going to be after us. All right, next one. Um, attuning and receptive to God's word. They were devoting their attention or devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. Again, notice in Acts 4, part of their prayers were Psalm 2. The nations are raging. What's going on? And they're against the Lord and his anointed. They are quoting scripture. Where did that come from? From devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching, they may have already had Psalm 2 in their head if a lot of them are Jewish. 
But the apostles helped them see how that psalm applied. How, how God wasn't asleep at the wheel. It was actually part of his predetermined plan that Christ would suffer. And now they're beginning to say, oh, so suffering was purposeful and you used it and you used it so to, to rescue us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And now we're part of that. So maybe the suffering we go through is also purposeful in your hand and we don't have to fear those who attack us. But we might, though we might be afraid, we can trust your hand and trust your care in the midst of it. That came from that that navigating life with resiliency and confidence came from being steeped in the scriptures, devoting themselves to God's word, being taught. What was the apostles teaching from? It was from the Old Testament in, um, in Acts 2, early, in, when the Spirit comes and people are like, hey, these guys are drunk. They're all speaking. And they're like, it's, Peter says, it's, like, it's too early to be drunk. It's sitting in LSU tailgate. Sorry. You're right there. Um, let me tell you, and he says, let me tell you what this is. And he begins to refer back to Joel and other passages to say, this is what God promised long ago, and now it's happening. Now God is doing a new thing that still is part of the old thing, consistent with it, but now it's a new thing because he's bringing a new covenant. He doesn't mention that there, but that is where he goes, the Old Testament. Then in Acts 3, when he heals the guy, he also talks to them about, he quotes Deuteronomy. There was going to be a prophet like Moses who's going to arise. And then remember our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he starts to explain to them. They're teaching out of the reservoir they already had that also was confusing for Peter. Because when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Oh, you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, ding, 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 that's the right answer. He says, and so uh, also I want you to know that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter rebukes him. Why does he rebuke him? Because he needed something explained to him that he either missed or just ignored in his, not Old Testament to him, but Hebrew Bible. That no, it was necessary for God's anointed one to suffer and then after suffering glory. What is Peter's epistle all about. I'm sorry. Jesus rebukes Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. You're obstructing what God is after. You, you're either you just don't want it. It doesn't fit your categories or what, but I'm trying to let you know, this is God's plan. I will suffer. And if you're in my way, get out of the way. It's later that Peter, when he denies him, right? I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus gazes at him He's failed, then Jesus restores him on the beach. And it's interesting that Peter is the one who stands up. And Peter is the one who says, let me tell you about this. And Peter is the one who says, you know, you, you rejected the cornerstone. But he's the one who's going to build a house of living stones. And what is First Peter all about? It's the people who are suffering threats and persecution in a place that's not their home. And he says, but blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he says, arm yourselves with this purpose for suffering. How does a man get to that? 
because he's in awe of the one that he missed the whole picture at first. But once God gave him the full picture, which was actually an embodied, resurrected, embodied picture, then Peter says, I'm in. And his awe is what fueled his resiliency and his passion for others to behold him. He made much of Jesus. So to close today, together we will. We've kind of done together we will each time. Together, as a church body, we will make much of Jesus. Or at least I hope that that's our hunger and desire. And we even see the nourishment that comes from gathering together to make much of Jesus, rehearsing and declaring his worth in our need, and being attuned and receptive to God's word, which is what they were with the apostles' teaching. They showed up. I'm I'm giving you my attention because I know I don't have all the categories figured out. I know life is hard and I can't make sense of it. And they showed up sometimes maybe wanting answers. We show up sometimes maybe wanting answers. And what we get instead is God saying, I'm going to give you some, but what I'm going to give you even more is my alongsideness. I'm alongside. I'm with you and I'm for you in the midst of what's difficult. And so we want to be attuned and receptive to God's word, rehearse. And what worship is, we say we want to have worship that's Christ-centered and exalting in him and we treasure him. What worship literally means is to declare worth. So we're declaring worth all the time, what we give our money to, our time to, what we think about, what we go to bed thinking about, what we wake up thinking about. And I just want to give you, uh, Eric used this psalm a few weeks ago as a call to worship, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask and that I would seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's why we are here to behold him. The essence of Christianity, we talk about this a lot, the essence of Christianity, if you're like, I'm not good enough, essence of Christianity is not to behave, but to behold. And it's in beholding beauty and beholding his vastness that we have to accommodate and bow and reorient and be reoriented, be renewed in our minds so we'd be transformed. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to finish with a song that helps us rehearse that truth. But while they're coming and getting set up, because I, I often pull the ripcord too fast on them, I want you to stand. And what we're going to do is we're going to give our attention to, I think, the passage that probably more than any caused Peter to go, the vastness of the Lord, the greatness of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord that everything in this passage that I told Jesus no way, he said it was said 700, it was written 700 years before I showed up. And now it's showing up and there's not one bit of this that hasn't come true in Jesus. It's Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53. We're going to attend to it by reading it out loud. I'm going to get us going. I'm going to walk off the stage. I just want us to read God's word and think about, behold him right now, who Jesus is, the suffering servant. And they'll lead us in a song that reflects this same passage. Would you 
read this together with me. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. What had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? 